0: Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and today we're talking all about teaching music to students with exceptionalities with Dr. Erin Parks of the Lotus Center. Erin founded the Lotus Center in 2012 based on a passionate belief that people of all abilities have a right to learn and experience music in an environment that meets their needs. Her strengths-based approach to (laughs) adaptive music education is based on a combination of evidence-based practice and a deep belief in the importance of relationship and responsiveness to the individual student. Erin received her Bachelor of Music, Master of Arts in Musicology, and a graduate certificate in piano pedagogy research from the University of Ottawa. She completed a PhD in music education from McGill University in 2015, where she researched how to effectively train studio music teachers to work with students with autism. Erin has been teaching music since 1996 and has worked with students of all ages and abilities in a variety of settings, primarily as a private and group piano Teacher. Based on her research and teaching experience, in 2020, Erin founded the Lotus Center Institute for Professional Development to provide training, tools, and resources for music educators working with students with exceptionalities. In addition to her experience and work as a music teacher and a teacher trainer, Erin is an active researcher with specific research interests in determining effective practice in teaching students with exceptionalities, therapeutic benefits of music education, and trauma informed teaching. Erin is a principal researcher at the Music and Health Research Institute at the University of Ottawa and a research fellow at the Research Center for Music, Sound, and Society in Canada at Carleton University. Erin is an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, where she teaches and mentors students in special music education. Erin presents at conferences and guest lectures throughout North America and internationally on teaching music to students with special needs and other issues in music education. Welcome, Dr. Parks. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. Very happy to be here excited to have you here. So before we get started to talk about all of the work that you do in the sphere of music education, I was wondering if you could let our audience know a little bit more about you and what led you down the path of being a musician?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it was almost inevitable, I think, because my mom is a piano teacher. And so, you know, it was always in the home. And I started piano when I was three years old. But, you know, I mean, a lot of kids start piano lessons or music lessons really young and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go this far. But I think for me, it um, really appeals to my nature of wanting to really have immersive experiences with sensory things. Right. Um, You know, and I, so I love just being able to immerse myself in music and just sort of be enveloped by that for me piano was the perfect instrument because I'm fairly introverted I like, <laughs> I like alone time I like to just be on my own and, and focus on things and just be engaged in the things that I find beautiful and, and special and so you know as i was growing up playing piano and being a musician became that more and more for me though i do really enjoy collaborative music making too like chamber music i always loved and i used to play you know at churches and things like that but for me it was really the the solo piano was the musician part of it and the music educator part was really sparked for me when i was 16 when i started teaching piano mm-hmm. just as you know an after school job at a studio in town And I just, I don't even know how to describe how much teaching was like, just became like a safe space for me. Like it didn't matter how badly my day had gone. Once I was teaching, I just adored being with the students so much and was so, I'm just so engaged in what I was doing that whatever else was happening in my world just disappeared for those hours that I was Mm -hmm. teaching. And so when I went to start university, there was no question that
0: that was the path I was going to take. I really love that. It was a similar thing for me. I just adored teaching and I didn't even question, like I knew I was going to go into music education. That was in some way, shape or form because I, I loved working with students. So. That's so great. So you are the founder of the Lotus Center, which is this incredible Ottawa-based organization that does teacher training for teaching students with exceptionalities and music lessons for students with exceptionalities. Can you share with us how you started the Lotus Center and what was your motivation behind that?
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a long winding road (laughs) to that. Like I said, I started teaching very young and, and pretty early on in my teaching career, I had a number of students with exceptionalities and sort of became the person in the studio that, you know, was tasked with teaching these students because I seemed to kind of have a knack for it, even though I had no training whatsoever. And I really didn't know what I was doing in any sort of formal sense, but I enjoyed it. So I had a few students with autism and Down syndrome and and Tourette syndrome and um, ADHD, but it wasn't on my radar at all as an area of specialization. I didn't even know that was a thing. It barely was a thing back then. This was in the right. 90s and <laughs> 2000, early 2000s. But I did enjoy that work. And, and those were really the students that made the biggest mark on me and were most impactful um, for me and my teaching. But it didn't really all come together until in 2010, I was applying to do my PhD. Still not at all on my radar to specialize in adapted music education or anything like that. But at the same time that I was working on all my doctoral program applications, my eldest son, who's now 17, was diagnosed with autism. And so as a parent, that became my whole world, was, you know, researching autism and trying to find activities for him and, and coming up short you know, trying to find swimming lessons or martial arts or soccer or whatever, you know, kids wanted to do. He was four at the time and it would always end with tears or, you know, the teachers didn't understand how to support him. And, you know, it just was kind of crashing and burning every time we tried. So I really, as a parent longed for Opportunities for him where I could take him somewhere where I knew the teachers would understand, where things would be catered for him and his needs, and and wasn't able to find it. And then at the same time, I was doing all this research on autism and finding more and more about music and autism and the strengths of autistic people when it comes to music and music making Mm -hmm. and the therapeutic benefits of music making for people with autism. And, you know, that started to click also with my own work and and what I had experienced in teaching autistic students and different students with exceptionalities. But at the time, my focus was really autism because of my son. And so that value of music for this population combined with my own experience as a parent, knowing I, I would... Love to have a place like that to bring my child to learn music. Music, if I saw that that was their interest, sort of all eventually converged into into Lotus Center. And at the time, I really didn't know if anybody would come. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a thing that existed. You know, when we started Lotus Center in 2012, it was the first school of its kind in North America. And so there was a similar school in in Finland that I consulted with, but there was really nothing here. I didn't know what the uptake would be like, but I thought well. If it's something that I would want, probably there are other people that would
0: want it as well. So we went ahead with it. Amazing. I'm so glad you did because it's it's such an amazing center and I serve so many families in the community and so many teachers as well.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Now, I mean, we have 150 students that come, you know, every week. So I'm sure I, I don't know the full count, but thousands of families over the years. So for
0: sure, I'm very glad that I did. So when teaching students with exceptionalities, whether that's students who are neurodivergent or have physical limitations, what are some key things to keep in mind as the educator. I know you emphasize a lot of student-led learning in your research. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think the
1: main thing I want everybody to keep in mind to sort of demystify it is they're still just students. Yeah. You know, and I hear so many people say, well, the student came to my studio, but I don't know how to teach students with ADHD or I don't know how to teach students with Down syndrome or, you know, whatever the case may be. And like I said, you know, I didn't either at first. It just did it. And that's not to say that there's no value in training. Of course there is. Just as with any element of our professional practice that we don't have a handle on getting some training or getting some experience is good. But just remember, they are just students. They just have different needs like every one of your students does. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that their different needs might require much different approaches than we're used to giving because most teachers teach the way they were taught. Right. You know, and unless the unless the way that they were taught really didn't work for them, which kind of forces them to examine the way they were taught, you know, that's that's sort of the fallback. I know it was for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up very much in the Royal Conservatory, like classical and that worked for me. I liked that structure. So when I first started teaching, that's just kind of what I did. That's what music lessons was to me. And it wasn't until I started learning different techniques that I could apply them. And so you might need to do more of that creative teaching, but don't you don't have to be too intimidated. And when we talk about student led learning, it's really about letting the student give direction on the way that they learn best or the way that they want to demonstrate their learning the best. And this is always a bit of a debate in education in general, not even just music education or special education between student led learning and sort of more teacher directed Learning Mm -hmm. where the teacher comes in with the curriculum, which the traditional music education perspective very much is, right? The teacher Mm -hmm. comes in, you're learning this, you're learning these scales, we're doing this ear training or whatever it is, go home and practice it every day for an hour or whatever it is. (laughs) Whereas Student led learning would be more that the student says, you know, I'm really interested in this or even just letting them show you in the lesson what they go to. So, for example, if you have a student that every time there's a pause in the lesson, they're kind of noodling around on their instrument, sort of improvising or whatever, going with that not being like, well, we're not doing improvisation in this lesson. I mean, oh, I see they're really interested in that. That might be a gateway to something, you know, for me, it is a balance, you know, it it can be too much on the student-led side where there's not enough structure. Like if you just go where the student wants to go all the time in the lesson, sometimes it can be a bit chaotic. For any student, structure is comforting, but especially for students with exceptionalities, sometimes they really need us to put that structure in place because sometimes their world may feel a little bit more chaotic. Yeah. So it's not just getting into that chaos with them and and following it, but it's, yeah, seeing those things that they gravitate towards and then imposing your pedagogical goals into those things. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. using what you see as a, as a gateway from them to teach what you want to teach and what you think are appropriate goals.
0: Yeah. I think that's important, that balance that you talked about, because it's not just, okay, the students get to come in and run the show, but that they do have a say. So one thing that you also talk about is the idea of strength based approach for students when teaching music lessons. Can you break down for our listeners what that means and how it might apply to our teaching practices? I I know that it very much stems from that student-led learning as well.
1: Yeah, it does, but it it is distinct and the two work together. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about strengths-based learning, it's less the student interest, which is what student-led learning is, though it can include the strengths as well. So we all have our preferred learning pathways, you know, whether we're visual, like I'm a visual learner, or I'm a kinesthetic learner, or I'm an auditory learner or whatever. It's not to say that's the only way we learn, but we all kind of have our our preferences. And the thing for students with exceptionalities is often one or more of those pathways may be compromised, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if a student is blind, for example, then visual learning is not going to be the best for them, or, you know, it, it can be, you know, any combination of things. And so while with typically developing students, we can kind of teach them anyway. And even if it's not their preferred learning modality, they'll kind of, they'll get it, they'll be able to soak it up and learn it. That's not necessarily, the case with students with exceptionality. So it's really important to look at what is their strongest way of learning. Do they learn really well by ear? Do they learn really well by road or by repetitive movement or with manipulatives or whatever it may be? And to teach to that strength for the most challenging parts so for me what that looks like is for me you know my instrument is piano when I'm teaching them to play the piano like their their performance the performance part of their lesson I use that preferred pathway so if I have a student for example that I know learns really well by ear and really struggles with note reading then I'm not going to focus so much on note reading when I'm actually trying to get them to play because that's going to hinder their ability to play and experience the music making that's not to say I'm not going to teach them no reading if I think they're capable it means I'm not going to use that as the pathway to playing their instrument Mm -hmm. so I would teach them by ear or whatever way works for them for the instrument because when they're playing it's also the most complex activity that they're going to do in the lesson right it requires eye hand coordination and all these different things going on at the same time Mm -hmm. so those things that are more challenging that are not strengths for them like in this example, you know, reading notes or, or a staff reading, I would do away from the instrument as a discrete activity where we're just working on that. And I make those things that are relative weaknesses, like as fun as possible, like yeah. <laughs> make it a game, like make it seem like exciting, you know, because otherwise it's going to be kind of a drag right and and there's no way around the fact that some things in the music lessons at some points are going to be challenging but we want it to be a positive experience for our students right we don't want them to be hung up on the fact that they can't read notes and now they can't play music it's not the case there's many pathways to learning music right and so we want them to feel competent with the music making with playing their instrument and work on these other areas that are maybe relative areas of weakness on the side build up those skills and And then eventually integrate them. Yeah. Make them like really fun. And then the things that are going to already be challenging, like the instrumental performance
0: use their easiest pathways. So it's less challenging for them. I think that's really great. So to break those down further, what are, what are some of the most common pathways? You've mentioned sight reading, you've mentioned um, oral learning, other ways, what are some other ways that teachers might access those pathways?
1: Mm -hmm. So I mean, and I, let's talk more even about very specific adaptations. So for example, for students that may be a visual learner, but may still struggle with staff reading there, a lot of the time I use color coding. For notes because the visual spatial, they may be a visual learner. And so if you try to teach them by ear, it's just not going to be the best pathway for them. Color coding the notes is a really simple way to do that. So like every C is red and every D is orange or whatever. And I use colors that correspond with boomwhackers and handbells. They're all the same color. Yeah. Um, so they work really well. And even for some students that again, are visual learners, but are even pre staff I have just cards that just have the circles. That is the color. And I just build out their, their piece that way. So for students that are visual learners, there's still those adaptations. Mm-hmm. And then for auditory learners, again, it's quite common for students with autism to have very strong pitch abilities, but that's not always the case. So again, a student can be an auditory learner and it doesn't mean they're like auditory superstars. <laughs> it just <laughs> means that that's their preferred path, right? There still might need to be some adaptations. So for some auditory learners, all I have to do is model the piece a few times and they've Got it. But for most, I do um, like singing the names of the notes that I'm playing. I sing in saufège, like fixed do yeah. saufège. So like do is always do on the piano. So we would just sing it. So like if they were learning hot cross buns, for example, I play it and sing me re do me re do and so on. Mm -hmm. and then they just translate it to the piano because I would teach them separately where is me, where's brave they've just sung it and they've heard it enough that they can just play it and so it kind of bypasses that reading part and then for students that are stronger kinesthetic learners. There are a number of ways that this can look. It can be really just repeating patterns over and over with their fingers until they just learn that way. It can also be using a lot of different manipulatives. So it can be that they need to kind of get down on the floor with like a rollout staff or something like that and play with it and see it and put things around to kind of make the connection Mm -hmm. to what they're hearing and what they're seeing. They just need that kind of kinesthetic piece. So that's some really common adaptations
0: that I use a lot. That's excellent. I think that's so helpful. I mean, I would have loved some of these <laughs> pieces of, of advice when I was like a really young teacher and just starting out and had no idea about, you know, even if students don't have an exceptionality, but just have a different learning pathway than right. I do. That sort of finding ways to complement their learning pathway. I think that's really helpful. We've been talking on the podcast a bit about sensory-friendly concert experiences. And I know that you have extensive experience in this as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about creating sensory-friendly studio spaces and accessible studio spaces for neurodivergent students. Is there a way that we can set up our music studio that helps the students with exceptionalities?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I do have a webinar on this. So if anybody wants to deep dive into it, it's there. The number one thing I would say to kind of preface, everything else I'm about to say is that it's not an, it's not necessarily um, all about having low sensory input. And that's sort of a bit of a misconception that when we're doing sensory-friendly programming or trying to create a sensory-friendly studio or anything like that, it's about keeping everything low, like lower lights, lower sound. And that's true to an extent, but it's not the whole picture because really what we want to do is create an experience that is safe, but customizable for different sensory profiles because the thing with students with exceptionalities, and particularly autistic students, they tend to have a lot of differences in their sensory profiling, we all have a what's called our optimal zone of arousal. So where we're most comfortable with the sensory input that we're getting, and it's different for everybody. So if you're the kind of person that, you know, needs to go work at a cafe where there's like bustling around you, and you that's where you take your laptop and you write and you're at your best, then you have high sensory needs, you just need a lot of input to be like, you know, at your best and kind of in the flow. If you're a person that needs to like go to the library or be at your desk and it's quiet, then you just have lower sensory needs. Right. And so we all have that Optimal zone. The difference with students with the exceptionalities is not that it's always low, it's that they, it's often much narrower. Mm-hmm. And so, what happens when we get above our optimal zone is like meltdowns, hyperarousal. And so, when we see autistic students or autistic children having meltdowns, that's usually what's happening is like a sensory overload. Mm-hmm. And we've all experienced that, right? We've all been like overloaded and been like, if somebody touches me, I'm just going to like lose it. Like, yeah. we've all, everybody's felt that way. But we <laughs> We just usually don't because we have enough self-regulation skills to be like, no, I'm gonna lose it. Like, let me calm myself down, and also enough social awareness to say, well, I know it won't be socially acceptable if I throw things right now or whatever I feel like doing. So I'm not going to do that. Where some of our students don't have the self-regulation to calm themselves and don't have the social awareness to say, I'm not supposed to do this, so I won't. And so they just do, you know. When they feel that way, they just do throw things or have a meltdown. And so when we're creating a sensory-friendly studio. We want to make sure that we're not, we don't have anything that can lead to hyper arousal that way that's going to, you know, create a meltdown, but also that we have opportunities in our studio to make sure that our students are getting the stimulation that they need. Because then when we see students, for example, with ADHD that look like they're kind of moving all the time they're just seeking the stimulation that they need. It's just their zone is up high. They need yeah. a lot. And so if everything's low, well, you're going to be dealing with a lot of like, you know, challenges in the lesson because they're going to be looking for that stimulation. Right. So it's about kind of creating a bit of a blank canvas so that you don't have a lot of things happening that are bombarding students that need a bit of a a lower um, sensory experience. So for example, if you are in a multi-studio situation, you know, making sure that there's soundproofing as much as you can, that it's not noisy and distracting you know, all around, you know try not to be next to the room where drum lessons are going on, that kind of thing. (laughs) Or if you're at your, you know, teaching at a home studio that there aren't like dogs barking and and that kind of thing. Keeping the studio decor to a minimum, like my studio is like a, a bright color on the walls. So it, it, there's some vibrancy there. So it's not like clinical, but I don't have a lot of knickknacks. And even on my shelves, it's mostly like baskets and boxes. It's not a lot of little things, but in those baskets are a lot of sensory things that I can pull out, right? But they're just not there as distraction. Also things like lighting is important. So if you can have natural light, that's great. Fluorescent lights are not the best for some people. Some neurodivergent people are quite sensitive to that. So having floor lamps. Mm -hmm. Um, instead is good. But yeah, it's all about having the ability in your studio to meet the different sensory
0: needs. So starting with something pretty calm, but having different ways to kind of like ramp it up if you need. Yeah. And your studio space, you're sitting in your beautiful studio space, I'm assuming, and it's got, I love the color on the walls. That's great. I think that's so helpful for teachers who are are now teaching more students with neuro differences. So I know that there's a very broad spectrum of learning differences that each student needs. And we have alluded to it as well, and you've discussed it. So I don't want to generalize anything, but I wonder if you could share with our listeners, any considerations when teaching musicians with known diagnosis, such as ADD, ADHD, or different, different considerations like that.
1: Yeah. And I I will preface it too, by saying I get the question a lot. I have a student and I think he has ADD or ADHD, or I'm pretty sure he's on the autism spectrum, But I don't know. And I would always say to that, you're you're just teaching the student to the characteristics that you see no matter what. Yeah, so it's great if we have a diagnosis because we already have a piece of information. So if we have a student come in and the parents say they have ADHD, great, if you don't know what ADHD is, you can look it up and you already have a good idea. But if not, and you see ADHD like characteristics or autism like or whatever, just use these strategies doesn't matter if you if you see a formal diagnosis with ADHD, or ADD, it's really two parts. So one part is the sensory part that I already spoke about where it's just there are different sensory needs that Mm -hmm. are very specific. And so if we're not meeting the sensory needs, everybody's nervous system is going to be trying to meet their sensory needs all the time. Like if you're sitting in a boring lecture, and you start fidgeting with your pen or doodling or something, that's your nervous system being like, wake up, wake up, wake up, you're just trying to keep yourself Focused, right? We just mostly do it automatically. And it's the same for people with ADHD when you're like, they're running around all the time, they're spinning on their chair. That's just what their nervous system is telling their body that they need. Right. And so, you know, when we teach students with ADHD, it's again, you know, kind of a piece of student led learning. There's no fighting that. You have to just go with it, you know, because their body needs what their body needs. And so it might mean that for us as teachers that are used to sitting on our chair and the student just sitting and playing their instrument, We have to kind of get out of that mind frame that's not going to happen but it's a lot less frustrating if we just get out of our chair and do some things than if we're trying to fight this all the time and it's not going to work for the student anyways so incorporating a lot of movement a lot of more stimulation maybe through playing along with backing tracks or you playing a percussion instrument while they play their repertoire piece or whatever it is but like incorporating more stimulation as you go (laughs) in controlled ways because if it's really out of control like if you just like take this drum and bang on it for 30 seconds to get your energy out. That's like not the best way yeah. to do it. Like there's really controlled ways to do it that meet your pedagogical goals right. um, and support them. But it's just making sure that that's infused into your lesson. The other piece for ADHD is executive function, which is like the your brain's ability to plan, prioritize tasks, that kind of thing, break down tasks and figure out what needs to be done, where to get to your final goal. So that can be really challenging also for people with ADD or ADHD. So they might need a lot more help with that because a lot of music making is that, right? You get a piece. It's like, where do I start? What do I work on first? What's like what's the priority here? And that might seem kind of obvious, but really breaking it down for students with ADHD and doing it with them in the lesson to make sure they get it and writing it down for them in a very detailed way, or even a voice recording, if that's better for them. For a lot of my students, I get them to check off every item and not because I'm like going to give them a sticker only if they do it or anything like that. It's just a tool for them. And I make that really clear. Like I'm not grading you Mm -hmm. do it or don't, you know, but it's a tool for you to help you to stay on track. And that can actually be a really great broader lesson for them and tools that work for them, right? That they can have some agency over their learning if they, if they incorporate these tools.
0: What about for students on the autism spectrum? I mean, the saying goes is if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So there is yeah. not a general rule for everybody on the spectrum. But are there some adaptations and considerations that we can incorporate into our music lessons?
1: Mm -hmm. And yeah,
0: it it is really tricky because it's Mm -hmm. so broad. And so I would
1: say, you know, one, one big thing right off the bat is there's sort of this version of autistic musicians out there that is always like the savant that is always the, the musician with perfect pitch that can just hear something and reproduce it. And that does exist for sure. I mean, the, the students with autism have a much higher chance of having absolute pitch or perfect pitch. So for the general population, we say it's about one in 200, but for people with autism, it's more like one in 10 to one. in 10. Oh, wow. So that's, you know, certainly true. But I would also say that as there's more and more awareness of of neurodivergence, it's important to also remember that approximately 30% or so of people with autism also have an intellectual disability and another 25% are border. Over 50% of people diagnosed with autism also have an intellectual disability or are borderline. And about 40% of autistic people are nonverbal. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, it is a very, very wide spectrum. And it's certainly not to say either that the students with intellectual disabilities or nonverbal verbal students can't also have these incredible abilities. A lot of them do. I have a lot of them in my studio, but just remembering that that also requires a different approach because on the other end of the spectrum are twice exceptional students who are autistic, but also gifted. Mm -hmm. And so it's really different, you know, approaches that are needed, but generally speaking, most autistic students have a pretty strong ear. So building, you know, towards that strength, Is a great approach and again the communication needs can really vary versus you know having a non-verbal student who maybe has low comprehension also because sometimes it's just that they're not speaking a lot but they understand everything sometimes it's that they're also not understanding everything as well right so but we also have the students that are quite precocious with their language and you know we're speaking in full sentences by the time they were 12 months old and you know (laughs) so there are also language and communication issues there but they're very, very different. Mm-hmm. Right. And so kind of remembering that there are going to be language or communication issues, but they're going to be very different. The sensory issues can be there right across the board. So going back to that optimal zone, but there too, it's different for all students. They can be hyper or hypo sensitive to any. So this like, again, sort of vision we have of autistic students having like the dark sunglasses and headphones and needing the lights low is not always true, right? So being aware of what the differences can be sensory communication, potentially intellectual disabilities, social challenges too. And then just looking at your student and seeing what they're bringing
0: to the table with that. It can't be that much more specific. Yeah. And like you said, you teach to the student. Every student is going to bring their own set of needs, whether or not they have an exceptionality. Exactly. So I know a lot of what you do also at the Lotus Center is equipping teachers to teach students with exceptionalities. Can you tell us more about the courses and the webinars that you offer there for our audience that might be interested in looking into those? Mm -hmm. I'm super passionate about this work. You know, even at Lotus
1: Center, there's only so much we can do within our four walls, right? Mm -hmm. For me, the real way to, 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 expand this work and build capacity is to equip more teachers to be able to do it with confidence and, you know, with them feeling that they have the skills that that they need. And so we have sort of three levels of courses. We have free webinars. We do three or four a year, um, but they're all archived on our Learn Worlds um, page in our Institute for Professional Development. And then we have mini-courses that are about three hours worth of content and also come with a PDF with more information. And there we have courses like Unlocking Potential in Students with Autism, Teaching Students with ADHD, that kind of thing. And then we have our certification courses. So this is three levels of intensive courses. Each is about equivalent to like a university course. It's a 10 week course with a couple of hours of lectures every week and some readings. And we have a discussion group. And at the end of the three levels, you receive a certification in special music education. And so that's really deep diving into all aspects of teaching students with exceptionalities. And all of the courses are really meant to be adaptable to any teaching setting or situation. So I'm a piano teacher. So the examples that I have from my studio are are piano based, but we have a lot of uh, school classroom teachers that take our courses or teachers that do different instruments or teachers that teach group classes. So we focus a lot more on the student needs and how to adapt your curriculum than we do you know, it's not instrument specific at all. Really, our goal is just to provide tools for teachers so that they can feel that
0: they're doing a good job and and meeting their students' needs. That's great. So I'll link all of that information and um, the Lotus Center website and your webinars and stuff in the show notes so that people can go and and look that up afterwards. Well, it's been a real pleasure getting to chat with you. We're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions. This is just something I'm doing with the At the end of all of the interviews for this season of the podcast. And yeah, we're just having fun with it. So, no wrong answers, just go with your gut. Can you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician?
1: I can definitely point to a moment that I knew I wanted to be a music teacher. And it was actually with a student with exceptionalities. He had been having a really, really, really hard time, but I sort of sat him down and gave him a bit of tough love. And the next week, he came back to my lesson and I thought he was going to be really mad at me or not want to come back anymore. And um, he said, you know, what you said to me last week was really nice. Said so no one's ever talked to me like that before. And I think I was maybe
0: 18 or 19 at the time. And I was like, oh yeah, this is it. This is what yes. I want to do. I love that. Do you have a favorite piece of music that you like to perform or play when when you have the time? Well, I really love Chopin's Lad number three. I cannot
1: play it well anymore,
0: (laughs) but I do enjoy it and I try. (laughs) That's great. Have you ever been given bad career advice and what was it? Um, I think the only,
1: you know, and I wouldn't even call it bad, but it was bad for me. It wasn't the right advice for me was that you can't have a career just teaching music. Like that's, that's not like a full-time job. So, and, you know, maybe I know that I know some teachers that I talk to that do find it like a lot to teach full-time, but for me, it doesn't drain me. It energizes me.
0: So, you know, I, I really love teaching. So that wasn't the right advice for me. For sure. Absolutely. What is some good music or career advice you can pass on to other musicians? I think that careers
1: in the arts are so diverse, Mm -hmm. you know, and so if you do find, you know, that. Teaching, you know, forty hours a week is a lot. There's so much, so much to do. Or like, you know, even with Lotus Center, I'm an executive director. I never would have thought that that would be a career path for me, but I love it. I love that piece of it. All kinds of arts admin job or program planning jobs, or different ways to contribute in the arts and kind of any other skills that you have that you can apply to a career. You can do in the arts and still have your love of music
0: be a part of it. You know, so. Really, there are no limits, I think, on careers in the arts. I love that. And I mean, part of my goal with this podcast is just highlighting the, the varied careers that it can take. We've had like punk band singers, we've had composers, conductors, performers, teachers. There's just so many ways that you can be a musician. So yeah. I-, I like that um what are you listening to right now so I have three teenagers (laughs) and (laughs) and surprisingly none of
1: them are like top 40 kids they're all quite diverse and I don't know why but my two boys have both kind of picked up Radiohead and so I've just been kind of getting back into Radiohead again which I used to really enjoy like 20 years ago and it's sort Mm -hmm. of reignited my love of Radiohead Uh, that's fun
0: I love it can you let our listeners know where they can find you and follow along with the work that you're doing Yeah. So we have two websites that I know you'll
1: post. One is the Lotus Center website, which is more kind of our our bricks and mortar and and the programs that we have there. But there's also lots of our research is posted there. Opportunities to volunteer or to donate to Lotus Center are also there. And then we have our Institute website that has all our courses. And then on top of that, we're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and particularly our Instagram page is a lot of resources for teachers.
0: Wonderful. You can follow us any of those places. Well, thank you so much for coming on loud and clear and sharing your insight with our listeners. Everything will be linked in the show notes. And I just really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us your expertise. Great. Thanks so much. I was really happy to be here. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to Saskatoon Symphony org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows and if you don't live in the saskatoon area you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website i'm your host olivia adams this is loud and clear and you can find me at oa music studios on socials thanks for tuning in we'll see you next time